Good morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to James chapter 1, book of James. And if you haven't had a chance to meet him, I want to introduce Tyler Walsh. who is now uh, officially fully on board as our new uh, Director of Discipleship Ministries. And I've asked Tyler if he will read for us our passage for this morning, uh, James 1, 1 through 12. All right. James 1, 1 through 12. says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that, it may be, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask with faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and you have been so good in giving us your word. Uh, You have revealed who you are. You have uh, revealed your thoughts and your intentions, your heart uh, toward us. And Father, I pray now that as we, we look at what you have told us, that you will uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, and hearts to believe what you have told us, to embrace that truth and love it and live it out. And we pray that you would accomplish your good work in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So it's a new series, um, and it's a journey through this book, the book of James, And the title for the series, Pressure Points, is very appropriate uh, because the people to whom it was first written were people who were under a great deal of pressure. And I just want to tell you a little bit about them so that you can uh, see how you might relate uh, to them and their pressures. Uh, These people were mainly Jews, born in Jewish families who had come to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but they have now been scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, in a time of persecution. And that's what uh, James means when he addresses this to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So these are Jewish believers in Jesus scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And because they have been scattered now, they have lost their homes They have lost their hometowns, they have uh, lost their jobs, their employment, and now they are needing to find new places to live, new ways to make a living, new friends. It was really tough, and it was tough for them especially because as Jews, 
they did not really fit in with the Romans, the Roman way of life. But as Jews who had come to believe in Jesus, now they no longer really fit in with their Jewish brethren who had not put their faith in Christ, and that was many of them. So in a lot of ways, they were outcasts, uh, people without a people, without, without uh, close friends, a lot of pressure in their lives, especially economic. So if you've ever lost your job, if you've ever wondered how in the world you were going to support yourself and your family, if you've ever felt like an outsider, maybe in your neighborhood or at school or at work, felt like you didn't fit in, if you've ever had to go and live somewhere that you didn't really want to be, well, then you can maybe relate to how these people were feeling. And even if you can't relate to those problems, I'm sure you can relate to others. Our passage talks about trials of various kinds. So maybe, maybe a severe illness, maybe a, a serious problem at work. Maybe a conflict, have a conflict, maybe with someone you love, uh, someone in your own family even. Um, the point is, everybody goes through hard times, even people who love Jesus. We, as James says, all meet trials of various kinds. What do you do when that happens to you? Maybe it's happening to you right now. Maybe you're in one right now. What do you do? What do you do when you go through a really tough time? Well, James is going to help us with this, and that's a really good thing because we need help. At least I do. Uh, because our natural reaction, our natural reaction when we encounter hard times is uh, seldom good at least speaking for myself, I know that's true for me. My natural reaction is usually not good. I suspect many of you, most of you are with me on this. Uh, I'll just be blunt. I hate trials. I hate them. I hate hard times. And I find that when I encounter a hard time, it, it often, it usually, it probably almost always tends at first to bring out the worst in me. Anger. Fear, frustration, a desire to run and hide. And yet, James here teaches a very different response to trials. Not fear, not anger, not impatience, not despair. Do you see what he said? Joy. Joy. Okay, be honest. Does that sound kind of impossible to you? Does that sound kind of impossible? Uh, I would love to have joy when I go through tough times. I would love to. But I have to admit, that is not my first reaction. And so when I read this, when I hear, count it all joy when you, when you meet trials of various kinds, the first thought that comes into my head is, yeah, right, sure, 
is so unnatural. And then it occurs to me that I remember, well, isn't that what Christianity is? The whole thing is unnatural. Hey, we're talking about a relationship with God. This is supernatural. This is not natural. The whole the gospel is about Jesus, the supernatural Son of God reaching down, reaching into our lives, rescuing us from what's natural, our natural condition, our sinful, messed up condition. Yeah, I, I heard a guy just uh, a couple weeks ago, he said something, and the way he said it was just like, yeah, that's it, that's the gospel. He's, he was talking about the time that the gospel first made sense to him, and he said, for the first time I realized that Christianity is not about well, what it is about is God being kind to bad people, not God rewarding good people. I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the gospel. That's so unnatural. So why should it surprise me or any of us that the way Jesus wants us to respond during times of trials is unnatural? Of course it is. Of course it is. Joy. Over and over again, the Bible tells us, God tells us in his word that he wants his people to experience joy. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. John fifteen eleven, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Philippians 4.4, 4. read it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc., etc. So God intends, God intends for joy to characterize our lives if we are believers in Jesus. If we have come to that place, we have said yes to Jesus. We have said yes to his, his gift of eternal life. We have said yes to all that God is for us in Christ and received him as the greatest treasure of all. Joy. And, and not just when things are fun. <laughs> not just when things are smooth. Not just when things are going just the way we want them, but even when things are really, really hard. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it honor God if we would respond to life's hardships with joy. I'm not talking about just pasting a fake smile on our lips and saying, yeah, everything's fine. Uh, I'm talking about joy, real joy. I don't think I've ever met anybody. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. I've never met anybody as that we've talked, if, if, the, if joy comes up. I've never met anybody who said, no, I'm good. I got all the joy I ever need. I don't, I don't want any more joy. Never happened. We all want more joy, and we especially want it when times are hard. Well, James is telling us the way. 
So I want to summarize what he says, and then I want to spend some time unpacking what it means, okay? How do you face trials with joy? Well, the short answer is, you need to learn to think differently about them. To live joyfully, you must think differently, especially in hard times. To live joyfully, you must think differently. James tells us some ways that we should think when we encounter hard times. And everything he tells us here runs completely contrary to what is natural, our natural way of thinking about stuff. Yeah, we, we, we have to think differently. Now, why do I say think differently? Well, notice how he starts out. He says, he says to count it or regard, count or regard a trial as a joyful thing. Well, to count or regard something is to think about it a certain way. And the way that he tells us to think about it, think about it as a joyful thing, a trial. Now, the very fact that he has to tell us to do this tells me that that's not the natural way to think. Think about it. Nobody ever has to tell you, count it as delicious when you encounter chocolate. Count it as delicious when you meet a hot fudge sundae. Nobody ever has to tell you that. Why? Because you don't have to count it as delicious. It just is. But that's not true with a trial. You have to count it as joy. You have to regard it as a joyful thing because that's not the natural way to think. You have to choose. You have to make a choice to think differently about it. Okay, let me me put it another way. Here's another way to think about it. We've got to learn to see or view trials in a different way, from a different perspective, from God's perspective. See it from God's perspective. It, it, because his way to see it is the correct way. All right? It's like James here is handing us a pair of glasses with the, the perfect prescription to be able to see properly, to see things from the right perspective, to fix our natural blurry vision. You guys are seriously blurry right now. Okay? Because when we look at trials with our natural vision, we don't see them properly. We don't see them accurately. Everything is out of focus. (laughs) And we come to all kinds of wrong conclusions about what we're seeing because we're not seeing it properly. But then, when we put on God's supernatural glasses, the glasses of God's truth, or as James refers to it, God's wisdom, when we put those on, then we begin to see. We begin to see things as they really are. And then then we can rejoice. So to live joyfully in hard times, you've got to learn to think differently. You've got to learn 
to look at things from God's perspective. And so here, I see several corrections to our natural thinking about trials. Okay, these are like corrective lenses. Corrections to our natural thinking about trials. Okay, we'll go through them one at a time. First of all, by the way, there should be a note sheet in your folder if you want to take some notes. Uh, Haul that out and feel free. First correction. When God brings or allows a trial into your life, think this way. He's not harming you. He's making you the person that you really want to be. He's not harming you. He's making you the person you really want to be. He's making you the person he wants you to be. And the more you understand the person he wants you to be, the more you're going to want it too. And that's going to change your attitude about trials if you remember that. Because isn't it natural? Isn't it natural to assume... (laughs) When something difficult comes into your life, isn't it natural to assume this? There can't possibly be any good reason why this is happening. There cannot be any good reason why God would do this to me or God would let this happen or however you want to put it. There's just no no good reason for this. Why me? Why now? Why this? There must be cosmic forces at work here trying to ruin my life. And actually, that's true. There are. There are cosmic forces at work in this world that are bent on evil and destruction. Fifteen years ago, especially, comes to mind. There are cosmic forces in this world bent on evil and destruction, and they are trying to ruin you, But, here's the thing, God overrules even evil cosmic forces. And as we just saw when we were working through Genesis, as we just saw from the life of Joseph, what others may mean for evil for you, God intends for good. So James is telling us that this trial you're going through, whatever it is, this is not just some pointless piece of ugliness, and it's not meant by God to destroy you. God will actually use it in your life to develop the kind of qualities that will make you happier in the long run. So he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow. Think about that. If you belong to Jesus, God is at work in your life to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means at least. You know those things about yourself that drive you crazy? Those flaws, those weaknesses, those annoying character defects that drive you nuts and and the people around you nuts? God's at work 
to remove those from your life. And he will. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It also means, you know, those, those qualities, those virtues that you wish you had, or you wish you had more of, like courage, kindness, patience, compassion, generosity, those Jesus-like qualities, you're going to have those. God's at work to develop those. But you know what? They don't come from God zapping you with his heavenly magic wand. I wish. They come, they come as we learn to rely on God and trust God and love God more and more as we rely on Him during hard times instead of on ourselves. That's how they come. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this, he's just been talking about, you know, you Christians, you, you've been born again by the Spirit of God, a new birth. And so he's talking about in this, this wonderful new Identity you have as a, as, a, as a child of God in this, you rejoice even though now for a little while, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved, hurt, sorrowed by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your trust, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gold is made perfect through fire. We are made perfect through trials. Why can't there be an easier way? Why can't there be an easier way? I suspect it's because easy ways do not motivate us to rely more deeply on God. It's hard times that do that. So, the way to have joy during a trial is to know something. Did you see that? That's how he says it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. The key is to know something. The key is to believe something. The key is to remember something, to think something. And that is this. God will use this trial to bring about good in your life. He's doing that. God's ultimate goal for your life is to make you perfect and complete. Like It's so amazing. It's just so amazing. That's an amazing goal. And when it finally comes about, you're going to be so happy about it. And everybody who knows you is going to be so happy about it. Gary Vanderett says it like this. Listen to this. That circumstance in your life from which you long to be freed. Have you got one of those? Have you got a circumstance in your life from which you long to be freed? That circumstance from which you long to be freed is probably the very circumstance that is making you what you long to be. God's not harming you in a trial. He's making you the person you really want to be. Second correction. When God brings or allows a trial into your life, He's not reluctant to help you. He wants to give you what you need. 
not reluctant. He's not hostile toward you. He's not indifferent toward you. He's not reluctant toward you. He wants to give you what you need. He is eager to give you what you need. This is a, a, just a very different way of thinking about God. Let's face it. Okay, let's be honest. <clears throat> when we're in the middle of a hard time, it's so easy to wonder, where did God go? Where did he go? What happened? Is he mad at me? Is he even hearing me when I pray? Does he even care? Okay, I know that's a common way to think, not only because I've done it many, many times, and others have done it many times. It's actually in the Bible. Okay, in the Psalms. We've got these Psalms. We've got all these songs, this poetry, which is there to help us enter into these experiences of faith. And the Psalms are basically divided into two big categories. You've got the Psalms of praise. God is great. Let's praise him. You know what the other category is? Psalms of lament. Life is tough. And you find in these Psalms of lament, you find statements like this. Psalm 13.1. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is David. King David wrote most of the Psalms. He's a guy who knows God. In fact, he's described as a man after God's own heart. So if David, a man after God's own heart, felt like this, it's not a surprise that I do sometimes. Uh, but here's the thing. If you keep reading, if you keep reading in Psalm 13, you'll find that David does not stay in that frame of mind. You get to verse 5 and he says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I've put my trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation and all you've done for me, rescuing me. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord. That's one of the weird things about Christians. We get together and we sing. How weird is that? Nobody else does that. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully, generously with me. See, David's doing here the very thing we're talking about in James. He's choosing to think differently. He knows. He knows God's not indifferent to his suffering. He knows God is not unconcerned about his troubles. He knows God's not holding out on him. He knows. How does he know? Because he knows God. He knows his Bible. He knows who God really is. He knows what God is really like, no matter how tough things are, no matter how things appear. He knows God is good. He knows God is faithful. He knows God is generous. And that's what James is saying. It says, if you lack wisdom in your time of trial, and you probably do, because you need wisdom to get through a trial, you need wisdom, you need God's perspective to be able to be patient and endure. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously and without reproach. And I love the way it says it. It, it. God wants you to have this. In the original language, it says it like this. It says, let him, the one who 
needs wisdom, let him ask of the giving God to all generously. Let him ask of the giving God to all generously. Now, that's bad English, but the point is, it's emphasizing his character. It's emphasizing his nature. He's the giving God. It's his nature to give. Well, we naturally think, no, it's his nature to withhold. It's his nature to, you know, demand and demand and not give. No. It's God's nature to give. He wants to give you what you need. He won't reproach you. He won't scold you for asking. He wants you to ask. He's a generous father. We just sang about it. He's a good, good father. He's not a tight-fisted miser. I remember when my kids were growing up, there were times when, you know, something was wrong. They needed something. They wanted something. They didn't have something. And I'm right there. And they're just complaining. And they're frustrated. And I'm here. And I'm dad. I can fix this. This. Ask. Just ask. Just ask. Jesus made this very point in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask, seek, knock. And then he says this, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give him a rock that looks like bread? Ha ha. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake, a poisonous serpent. You wouldn't do that. Well, then if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask? So ask. Ask. God is better than we think he is. And when James tells us to ask without doubting, okay, he's not, he's not just talking about those weak moments of faith that everybody has, like David in Psalm 13. Nobody's faith is perfect. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is not struggling to believe. He's talking about refusing to believe. He's talking about unbelief. He's talking about making a choice to trust in your goodness instead of God's goodness, that's double-mindedness. Okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll throw up a prayer here, but I know it's not going to happen because God's not that good. Don't do that. When trials come, go quickly to your Father in heaven. Go quickly. Ask Him for the wisdom you need. And ask with confidence in his goodness, his eagerness to give, his generosity. See, this, this is really important because this, all this stuff on trials here, this is not like a self-help book, okay? This is not just advice on how to improve yourself, how to be a stronger person in time of trial. It's not that. This is all about one thing, learning to depend more fully on God. And you will only do that You will only do that if you are convinced he's good and wants to help you. He is and he does. One more correction. When God brings or allows a trial into your life, he will not waste it. He will make it worth it. He will not waste it. He will make it worth it. Isn't that what we fear sometimes? that this hard thing we're going through just will turn out to be absolutely pointless. This thing's pointless. 
No good is going to come out of this for me or for anybody else. If you belong to Jesus, that is never true. That is never true. He is always at work in hundreds and probably thousands and even tens of thousands of ways that we can't even imagine. You know, we tend to be so focused on our little thing and I can't see anything good coming out of this to me. Well, maybe he's at work in 10,000 other ways that you can't see right now and you won't see until you're able to look back from his perspective. God is at work, always at work to accomplish his good purposes in the lives of those who trust him. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all. Okay? Biggest little word there is. Three letters. All. Not some things, not many things, not most things, all things work together for good for those who are called, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. (laughs) So, the ultimate outcome, the ultimate outcome will be glorious. So glorious so glorious that you're going to be able to look back if God allows that. I don't know how that works, but if, if we're able to look back and see all the hard stuff we went through, we'll be able to look at every single thing and go, yeah, yeah, it was worth it. God made it worth it. So you have this picture here of the lowly brother, the poor, destitute believer, the person who's lost his job and can barely make ends meet, and God pictures him being exalted. And the rich, those who are constantly tempted to trust in their wealth instead of God, those who are tempted to be apathetic to the suffering of others, they will be humbled. We need to listen to that because most of us in this room are rich according to world standards. Don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God because justice will be done. And the humble will be exalted and the proud will be humbled. And those who have loved God through it all, to those he will give the crown of life that he has promised. It's going to be glorious. It's all going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Now, do you see how all these corrections, all this different way of thinking, do you see how they're all forward thinking? Do you see that? What was my first point? He's not harming you. He's making you the person you really want to be. Someday you'll be that person. Uh, He's not reluctant to help you. He is going to give you what you need, forward thinking. Those trials, he will not waste them. He will make them worth it someday. It's forward thinking. The key to joy in a difficult present is confidence in a fantastic future. And oh man, do we need this correction because most of the time, most of us are totally preoccupied with here and now or even yesterday, we need to become a whole lot more preoccupied 
with the promises of God on what's coming. Warren Wiersbe said this, if we live only for the present, if we live only for the present and forget the future, trials will make us bitter, not better. We've got to think differently. We just got to think differently. We've got to stop living as if this world is all there is. To live joyfully, you've got to think differently. I do, you do, we all do. And so we need to help each other with this. Because as Rick Warren has said, when it comes to trials, you're either just coming out of one, or you're in one, or you're just about to go into one. And so we need, we need help. We need to help each other think differently. We need to get into our Bibles together. We need to speak truth to one another. We need to encourage one another. You know, the first response when somebody hits something hard is not to say, okay, well, you know how you should be thinking about this. Don't start there. Start with a hug. Start with some tears. But then, help me. Help me remember how to think about it. We've got to help one another to go through these things with joy. Let's pray. I don't know what you're going through right now. I know what some of you are going through. And some of you are in the middle of a tough trial. And you're wondering where God went. You're wondering why it has to be so hard. And I... I just want to tell you, go to him. Ask him for the wisdom you need and trust him to be generous to you because he will. If you've never yet put your faith in Christ and you keep holding back, then this doesn't make any sense. And it won't make sense until you say, Jesus, I I want to trust you. I want to put my hope in you alone to work out everything for my ultimate good. I know I don't deserve this. I am a sinner. I am guilty. But I want to trust you because you paid the price. And please be my greatest treasure. Father, I, as you well know, better than anyone else in this room, you know how much I don't like trials. Uh, you know how it can feel pretty hypocritical exhorting everybody to uh, respond to trials with joy when that's not how I respond, at least not initially. Help us, Lord. Help us see things differently. Help us see things from your perspective. We need you so much. And we thank you that you are a good father who is eager to give us joy. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.